From the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts, it's the Broad Ignite podcast. Each month, we feature a researcher supported by this program, which connects rising philanthropists with emerging scientific talent. Learn more at giving.broadinstitute.org slash broadignite. Broadignite, seeding the next generation of visionaries. We're going to take captive Anopheles mosquitoes, the kind of mosquitoes that transmit malaria, and explore different ways of getting DNA molecules, artificial DNA tags, to stick to the bodies of these mosquitoes. I'm Jen Chen, and I'll be the host for this episode. Joining me today is Dan Neefsey, the Associate Director of the Broad's Genomic Center for Infectious Diseases in the Infectious Disease and Microbiome Program. It's a bit of a mouthful, so I'm going to boil it down for our listeners. Dan studies mosquitoes and mosquito-borne disease. Dan, welcome to the program. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me on the show. So on this podcast, we're interested in learning more about the scientists behind the science. And from what I remember with you, Dan, I saw a lecture that you had a couple a couple of summers ago where you talked about how you got started actually in pufferfish. So how do you go from pufferfish to mosquitoes? Pufferfish were actually a model organism for studying genomes when I was in graduate school in the late 90s. Pufferfish have pretty much the same set of genes that humans do, but because their genome is eight times smaller than the human or mouse genome, uh, we had the complete gene sets for two species of pufferfish before we had even finished our own genome or the genome sequence of mouse. Um, however, in the time since the first human genome draft was released in the year 2000, the cost of genome sequencing has fallen by about 100,000-fold, uh, making pufferfish a, a less compelling organism to study um, by virtue only of its small genome size, uh, despite how cute they are. Um, so when I finished graduate school, I, I wanted to transfer the things that I learned about genome evolution to a context that uh, was more directly relevant to public health. And I fortunately had an opportunity to come to the Broad to study the genomics of infectious diseases and mosquito vectors. For those of us who live in temperate climes or colder climes, we probably don't have a really good sense of how bad malaria is. Dan, can you give us a sense of the scope of the global epidemic, and why is it so much worse than other mosquito-borne diseases like dengue or Zika? So dengue and Zika are certainly bad diseases in their own right. Uh, malaria, however, is important because of the sheer scale of the morbidity and mortality that inflicts on human populations around the globe. So by the most recent statistics from the World Health Organization, we know that malaria causes more than 200 million cases each year, and uh, and it causes more than 400,000 deaths each year. And the tragedy is that the majority of those deaths are young kids under the age of five in sub-Saharan Africa who are particularly susceptible to malaria infection because they haven't yet built up natural immunity. Malaria is one of those diseases that you get over and over and over again, and you can eventually develop a tolerance to it, but you never get perfect immunity to it in the way that you might to chickenpox or some other diseases. Given how long it's been plaguing us, don't we have a vaccine for this yet? We don't yet have a highly effective approved vaccine for malaria. Despite decades of work and chronic continuing transmission in many tropical regions, we still have a lot of work to do before we can produce a highly efficacious and highly protective malaria vaccine. Um, on top of that lack of vaccine, uh, malaria parasites are really good at evolving resistance to the drugs that we develop to treat infected people. Uh, and in fact, malaria parasites in various parts of the world have evolved resistance to literally every drug that's ever been developed, even for the newest drug that's the first line of therapy in most parts of the world called artemisinin. 
Um, and further, mosquitoes. Uh, mosquitoes are essential for transmitting malaria, and we've had a lot of success in the past controlling mosquitoes and controlling their disease transmission by using insecticides, in particular using bed nets that are treated with insecticides to kill any mosquitoes that, that land on those nets. Um, but we know that mosquitoes are also developing resistance to the insecticides that are used on those nets. So, so these setbacks are, are worrisome, this lack of a vaccine and this uh, resistance that develops to drugs and, and insecticides. Um, um, it's only been about a half a century since malaria was eliminated from parts of the U.S. and Europe. And uh, this is a disease that we want to get control of and we want to eradicate because the world is getting warmer and because coexistence with malaria is is a, is a miserable stalemate. Dan, can you describe what happens on a cellular level when you get bitten by a mosquito carrying the malaria bug? Yeah, it's it's actually it's a it's a really complicated baroque lifestyle that would be beautiful if it weren't for all of the the misery that, that malaria causes. Um, so the mosquito injects a form of the malaria parasite called a sporozoite that migrates through your blood and finds your liver. And once it gets to your liver, it it sets up shop in one of your liver cells and can live in your liver for in some cases a week or two, in some cases for months or years. And eventually, depending on the species, the the parasite emerges from your liver and starts to invade your red blood cells. And a malaria parasite will get into a red blood cell, um, grow, reproduce, and eventually cause that red blood cell to burst and release somewhere around 16 copies of itself to then repeat that cycle and invade new red blood cells. So this process of cyclical invasion and reinvasion can quickly build up to a really intense infection. So the, the bursting of your blood cells is a really vivid image. Is that what ultimately causes people to die from, from malaria? So the the fever and chills and other symptoms that are, that that are characteristic of malaria infections are are often caused by the the cycles of uh, of cells bursting and releasing malaria parasites. But mortality is typically caused by malaria infections that proceed to what's called severe malaria or cerebral malaria. Happens when uh, red blood cells that are infected by parasites lodge themselves in the blood vessels of your brain. And when they restrict circulation there, that can lead to uh, the most dangerous cases of malaria. Let's move on to a more optimistic note here. Um, a lot of money has been thrown at the malaria epidemic. How is it that what you study, which is the genomics of the bug and of the mosquito, how is that going to make a difference in how we tackle malaria? Right. So by studying the genomes, by studying the DNA of malaria parasites and the mosquitoes that transmit malaria and even our own genome, we can understand how the players in this disease system have been interacting over time. And we have all been interacting for a, for a long time. And we can see the signatures of that co-evolution and that co-adaptation and elaborate biological interplay in the DNA sequence. Uh, so we know that... Um, Malaria parasites are transmitted only by one kind of mosquito, Anopheles mosquitoes. And, and so the specificity of that interaction bespeaks a long history of coevolution and lots of determinants that, that we are just starting to get an understanding of. Um, we know that malaria parasites that infect people don't infect other animals typically. Uh, Falciparum malaria and Vivax malaria uh, exclusively infect humans. And so we know that they've, they've tuned themselves to be particularly effective at, at infecting and invading our cells. So by using DNA studies to understand how that specificity arises, we can get new ideas and new 
new inspirations for interrupting those interactions through more effective vaccines and through new drugs. Your Broad Ignite project sounds really cool. It's definitely different from what other stuff that we funded through this program. Um, you're basically, from what I understand, you're basically tracking mosquitoes in the wild. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, that's right, Jen. So biologists love to learn about animals by tracking them. Uh, so when we mark animals and release them back into the wild or when we put a radio collar on, say, a grizzly bear, we can learn a lot about its biology by studying how far it moves and where its home territory is and, and, and other things. Um, biologists do study insects in this way, too. They can put uh, labels or, or marks on the wings of, for example, monarch butterflies and study how they migrate between various parts of the United States and, and Mexico every year. Um, mosquitoes are too small to carry <laughs> radio collars. They're too too small even to have labels put on their wings. That's a great um, image, by the way. <laughs> um, what biologists typically do to track mosquitoes and understand how far they move and how far, therefore, they can spread disease is to put fluorescent dust on them. And uh, then by using a UV blacklight, if you recapture a mosquito and you find a little bit of this fluorescent dust on them under the blacklight, you know that that was one that you previously saw and can learn things about how far they move. Um, the problem is that a recent study showed that the process of applying this fluorescent dust and even the color of the fluorescent dust can affect how long mosquitoes live. And so uh, it's obviously less than ideal if our tracking system for, for um, studying mosquitoes is in fact slowly killing them. Um, we want something that will let us study their behavior in the wild and understand their movements and capacity to spread disease, but doesn't actually hurt them. What was the thing that you found? So the solution is DNA, not the DNA that's in their cells, not the DNA that encodes the instruction manual for, for how they're, they're, they operate, but at rather artificial DNA. So DNA has a lot of advantages over a, a tag or a, a leg band. It's tiny. It's, a, it's, it's molecule scale, of course. It's cheap to make artificially. We have technology to build DNA molecules in any sequence of A's and T's and G's and C's as we like, so we can encode information into these molecules. Um, DNA is non-toxic. It's ubiquitous in the environment. You eat it in your food all the time. Uh, and if you get sick, it's not because of the DNA. Um, and finally, we have a really sensitive tool in the laboratory to detect DNA molecules with specific sequences of A's and T's and G's and C's. So uh, because of these attributes, I think DNA could actually make a, a great way to tr label mosquitoes and track them. So how do you get the DNA into the mosquitoes? You're not capturing them one by one and injecting them. That is a great question. And uh, that's precisely what I plan to use this Brodignite Award to explore. Uh, so in collaboration with scientists at the Harvard School of Public Health in the laboratory of Flaminia cataruccia, uh, we're going to take captive Anopheles mosquitoes, the kind of mosquitoes that transmit malaria, and explore different ways of getting DNA molecules, artificial DNA tags, to stick to the bodies of these mosquitoes and then uh, explore our capacity to then redetect those molecules later on using this method. This technology, I remember you described it to me before, that it has the potential to be used elsewhere. Can you tell me more about that? Sure. If we can get DNA molecules to adhere to the bodies of, of mosquitoes, their chitinous exoskeletons, we can 
most likely use the same technology on all different kinds of other mosquitoes, even other uh, arthropods that spread disease like the ticks that, that spread Lyme disease. Uh, it's a technology that could also be applied to, for example, insect pests uh, that are threats to agriculture. So I think it's a very generalizable method. We just need to do the work up front to best understand how we can get these DNA labels to stick in a manner that lets us very sensitively redetect them later on when we capture those insects. I'm always fascinated to learn how scientists get their ideas. So were you sitting at home watching Planet Earth one day and you had this idea that, aha, I can track mosquitoes with a certain kind of method. How did you get this idea? Yeah, I. Um, some people may have their ideas in a vacuum. I get all of my best ideas by talking to other scientists. And uh, this particular idea I, I had in a, in a fairly exotic setting at a mosquito conference in, in Crete. I was just having a conversation with another mosquito biologist about how we could track mosquitoes. And we discussed various methods like the dust or like even using tiny little radio ID tags. Um, and it was then that it occurred to me that, that DNA could actually be the solution to this problem and let us get a, a great sense of how mosquitoes move and, and how they can spread disease. Why do you think a project like this is perfect for Brodick Night? Oh, it's perfect because it's an exciting idea. It has potentially great impact and wide application. Uh, but we need to work out the first steps. We need to basically show its, its inherent viability and figure out the best ways of getting these DNA labels to stick to mosquitoes. And once we can do that, I'm confident this project will have lots of applications in wild populations of mosquito vectors and, and that this could be applied to all kinds of studies of malaria and other vector-borne diseases. One last question for you, Dan. I know biologists tend to develop a soft spot for the animals that they study. Do you have a soft spot for mosquitoes now? I will say that I am fascinated by mosquitoes, uh, but I do not have a soft spot for them. I will kill them uh, as quickly as anyone when I see one land on my, on my arm. The only difference is I might take a close look at it after I crush it and try to figure out what kind it was. Dan, this has been super fascinating. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Jen. It's been great. This has been the Broad Ignite podcast. Thanks for listening, and we hope you tune in again to learn more about the amazing science and scientists at the Broad. The Broad Ignite podcast is produced by Bradford Krieger of Big Night Studio. Special thanks to Scott Sassoon from the Broad's communications department, and a big warm thanks to all the supporters of Broad Ignite. Learn more at www.giving.broadinstitute.org/broadignite.